Stay hungry, stay foolish. Today's guest proposes a practical and sustainable approach to one of the greatest challenges facing leaders today, transforming your business in the face of imminent disruption. His latest book, Dual Transformation, shows us how a company can come out of a market shift stronger and more profitable because the threat of disruption is also the greatest opportunity a leadership team will ever face. Disruptive change opens a window of opportunity to create massive new markets. It is the moment when a market also ran can become a market leader. It is the moment when business legacies are created. That moment starts with the core dual transformation framework. Transformation A, repositioning today's business to maximize its resilience, such as how Adobe boldly shifted from selling packaged software to providing software as a service. Transformation B, creating a new growth engine such as how Amazon became the world's largest provider of cloud computing services. Capabilities link, taking advantage of difficult to replicate assets without succumbing to the sucking sound of the core. Our guest with his co-authors, Clark Gilbert and Mark Johnson, addresses the characteristics leaders must embrace. Courage, clarity, curiosity, and conviction. Without them, dual transformation efforts can flounder. Building on lessons from diverse companies such as Adobe, Manila Water, and Netflix, and a case study from Gilbert's first-hand experience transforming his own media and publishing company, Dual Transformation will guide executives through the journey of creating the next version of themselves, allowing them to own the future rather than being disrupted by it. We welcome friend of the Innovation Show and author of Dual Transformation, How to Reposition Today's Business While Creating the Future, Scott D'Anthony, welcome back to the show. Aiden, thanks for having me again. Pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you back, Scott. One thing before we get into the book is the passing of Clayton Christensen, who was a business partner of yours, but also a dear friend. And Clay was due to come onto the show, but his ill health was always a challenge. I'd be delighted if you'd honor Clay with a few words on the profound impact he has had on business, on students and on lives. Thank you very much, Aiden. I first met Clay almost 20 years ago now, back when I was a student at the Harvard Business School. And I had the great, great, great privilege to call him many different things through my life. He was a student. He was my direct boss. He was a co-writer of some things we did together. He was a colleague as we worked to try to build up Innosite. He was a mentor. And most critically, he was a friend. And the thing that I really have reflected on and our community has reflected on is just the outpouring of good wishes that have come after he sadly passed away earlier this year. And we've realized how many people in the world he had a positive impact on, which left us all feeling incredibly grateful that we absorbed so much of his energy and rededicated our effort to carry the torch that he helped to light. He was a singular force, and I am proud to have been somebody who has been associated with him for two decades. Clayton Christensen, this show absolutely salutes you, sir. May you rest in peace. So, Scott, with that nice note, I appreciate it. So let's jump into it. And I loved the introduction and how you start with what you called the Kodak moment. Excuse the pun. But you talked about the sliding doors of what might have been for Kodak. 
I think this is part of the Kodak story that's not really understood because most of the time when people look at Kodak and what they perceive was Kodak's problem, it's attributed to being myopic. They just missed it. Digital was something that they ignored, they didn't invest in. But it's not true. Kodak invested very heavily in digital imaging. They had a commercially successful lines of cameras, so they got that into the market and they did it pretty well. And then people will say, oh, yeah, but they were blind about the disappearance of imaging into the phones and the ability to share photos online. And that's not true either. In 2001, Kodak bought an early photo sharing site, a, a site called Ophoto. This is before Facebook exists. This is before Instagram exists. Kodak was there. Imagine a world where Kodak buys Ophoto and says, what's our tagline? After all, it's share memories, share life. Why don't we make it easy? for people to share memories and share life? Why don't we make it easy for people to upload pictures? Why don't we make it easy for people to share updates about themselves? It's not hard to imagine a world where Kodak creates Facebook and then is a thriving company today. Of course, that's not what happened. Even though Kodak was in the right space, it didn't manage that appropriately. And sadly, it went bankrupt in 2012. But it was close. It was very close. So your business, Innocite, Scott, releases a corporate longevity report. And I found it fascinating that of the Fortune 500 companies on the list in the last 65 years, only 12% remain. But your recent research shows the speed of disruption is increasing and how in the next decade or so of the S&P 500, 50% face possible disruption. It's a pretty scary time for many large organizations. If you look at what's going on. Technology is continuing to advance. You've got people that used to be in very different markets emerging as competitors. You, of course, have all sorts of macroeconomic risks and shocks, you know, dealing with the coronavirus globally right now. It's a really difficult time to be a leader. And the bet you increasingly make is is an organization still going to be there in 15 years? The, the bet is no. That, that is the simple numerical-based bet, because if you believe 50% turns over in 10, obviously you go to 15, it's more than 50%. So now, of course, there is a, a flip side to all of this. If you look at, at some other pieces of data, they will say that market concentration is going up and not down, that when you see companies disappearing, many of them are disappearing because the larger buying the smaller. So the bigger getting bigger, the power are getting even more powerful. There are some pieces of data that suggest that this actually isn't the worst time in the world to be a large company, but I think most executives would say it's a pretty scary time. They're dealing with these unicorns, privately backed companies worth more than a billion dollars, people who are playing by different rules, and on and on and on. So there is indeed a lot of stuff going on out there. That idea of acquiring your way to growth or into emerging markets isn't enough. All you're doing is kicking the can. It's a kind of a Ponzi scheme of sorts. You're using your wealth to acquire more growth. But oftentimes, then the mindset of the business becomes one of scaling rather than searching. We think if you look at a large established organization, look, smart M&A strategy should be a piece of what they're trying to do. Uh, you might need to acquire a particular technology or capability or route to market or product or whatever. But if that's the only way you're thinking about growth, you're never going to get anywhere because the first year you buy it, yes, all of a sudden you've got this new thing. 
But then what are you going to do the next year? So yes, it, it can become a Ponzi-like scheme where you have to keep buying in order to grow, and ultimately you run out of things to buy. So the ability to drive organic growth is a critical factor to be able to continue to perform, undoubtedly. And in a positive version of that, you mentioned adjacencies where organizations acquire their way to growth by using existing capabilities to solve new problems for customers. And you say, well, structured adjacencies are powerful and should be part of any growth strategy. Exactly right. And if you look at some of the examples that are in the early part of the book, we talk about Janssen, which is the pharmaceutical arm of Johnson & Johnson. It's very natural for that company to say, hey, we have a great R&D engine. We've got a great distribution engine. We've got a great ability to work with regulators all around the world. If we get a drug in a category we're not in, if we get an early stage thing that isn't quite ready to go mass market, but we can go and drive it to commercialization, that's a very natural and smart thing for it to do. Now, if that was the only thing that Janssen was doing to try and drive growth, again, you'd be worried that it wouldn't be able to realize full market potential. But as part of the overall strategy, it's a very smart and sensible thing to do. Yeah, and I loved your description of the Janssen J&J approach to R&D, Scotty. I'd love if you shared with us what a focus on emerging markets, how it's not enough, which is what Janssen's competitors were doing. And I always think of the concept of shoring up stagnant sales by focusing on emerging markets as a game of musical chairs. You eventually run out of chairs, but I'd love if you shared Janssen's and J&J's approach to R&D. Yeah, this is a really important shift that's happened over the last 10 years. So let, let's go back in time. 2009, Joaquin Duato takes over the organization. And it's an organization that is in a state of trouble, at least, if not maybe crisis. The sales had declined for the two previous years. A number of important drugs were about to come off patent, which meant you're going to be dealing with Me Too competitors. So Joaquin and team have to decide what they're going to do. Now, they could keep doing what they're currently doing better, faster, and cheaper and make some acquisitions, but they realized that wasn't going to be enough. So one key thing that they did was really look hard at R&D and find ways essentially to transform it. So historically, the way Janssen did R&D was get the smartest scientists it could find, put them in a laboratory, and prayed that those scientists would discover a molecule. It made two important shifts. The first shift that it made was to form what it called disease area strongholds. So it wasn't going to try and discover everything. It was going to pick a few conditions that it would understand better than anyone else in the world and really go deep in those areas. Number two, it opened up the R&D process. They said, there's no way that we can have monopoly on the best scientists in the world. So yes, let's hire really smart people. And then let's be the partner of choice for universities, for startups, for great scientists, wherever they might be. You fast forward to today, at the beginning of the story, R&D productivity was among the lowest in the industry. Today, it is the highest. There's a full R&D or full pipeline of drugs that are in process, and Janssen's fortunes are booming. And this change in R&D is a key component of this shift. This is, by the way, what we call transformation A, which is a key part of the dual transformation equation. Janssen isn't leaving its old business behind, but it's fundamentally changing the way in which it competes in that business. It's changed its core operations. It's made it more resilient. And this has been a key plank of its growth strategy. Let's use that as a, a way to describe the dual transformation framework, because I mentioned it in the introduction, transformation A, B, and then the capabilities link. I'd love if you expanded on this. 
the great news about dual transformation is the the answer that we provide in the book. And the question is, what do I do if I'm a leader of an organization in the face of disruptive change? The answer is fully in the title. So transformation is a change in form or substance. So you're not doing what you're currently doing better. You're doing something fundamentally different. And dual means you're not doing one thing, you're doing two. So in the case of Janssen, we talked about transformation A, which is changing the way fundamentally that it did R&D. Transformation B then is going into new markets and creating a new growth engine. In the case of Janssen, its new growth engine is what it calls disease interception. The basic idea is technology is now sophisticated enough, we've decoded the human genome enough that we can create the equivalent of a check engine light for a human being. So that light could say, Scott, you think you're a healthy 45-year-old male, but the light's blinking. We see diabetes in your future. And we've got an answer for you. It's not a pill. It's a program to get you to change your behavior so you never get this condition. This is a massive idea and also an incredibly disruptive idea for a company that makes tens of billions of dollars selling pharmaceutical products that allow you to treat and manage diseases. It puts that business at risk. But J&J and Janssen know it's the right thing to do and know that there's great growth potential there as well. So it is this parallel effort of reinventing today and creating tomorrow that is the essence of dual transformation. Let's use this then to share the dual transformation equation, Scott. A simple formula with a far from simple execution as the Barnes & Noble versus Borders story tells us. We've talked a little bit about transformation A and transformation B. The basic equation that we have is A plus B plus C equals delta, which of course is D in the Greek alphabet, and delta is the mathematical symbol for change. So we've talked about A and B. Let me explain briefly what C is. So when we talk about dual transformation, we're not talking about unrelated diversification, where you're getting into markets that are completely different than what you do because you think you might make money in them. Instead, when we show it graphically, A and B are two overlapping circles, and we put that C, the capabilities link between them, to show that it is conscious, purposeful, strategic diversification, where you're saying, look, we have unique capabilities that make us great. We can very selectively leverage those capabilities to do something in the B space that no startup company or a few other large companies can go and do. Now, this is not easy. If you go and look, we talked about Clayton Christensen at the beginning. If you go and look at the roots of his research, The Innovator's Dilemma, the challenge many organizations have is when they try to do new things, the existing business almost acts as a gravitational force that pulls everything back to it. So the capabilities link is that ability to essentially have your cake and eat it too, where in the B organization, you can have the speed and flexibility and entrepreneurialism of a startup and, and, and you can have these capabilities that only a big company has. And when you bring those two things together, if you do it in the right way, you can do some truly magical things. That link is hard. It's not easy to build. It's not easy to run, but it is the secret sauce of making dual transformation work. I empathize with so many of these companies because they're scaling the business, they think they've got a hit product, but they get blinded by that success. And you tell us about the Nokia story, how in November 2007, Forbes ran a cover story entitled, One Billion Customers, Can Anyone Catch the Cell Phone King? And a year later, the gradual decline and the long kiss goodnight started to happen. And that year, the S&P was up 5%, but Nokia stock surged 155%. But the company was still a dead man walking. I'd love if you took us through this 
what happened and what could have happened. It's a great and very interesting case study. You know, I have a, a, an article that just came out in the Slow Management Review that talks about how leaders delude themselves about disruption. Essentially, leaders lie to themselves about disruption without, of course, meaning to, and that makes it very hard for them to respond. And one of the lies that leaders tell themselves is that the data says that we're safe. And of course, the reason why that's a lie is data looks backwards, not forwards. So if you're running Nokia, if you're running Research in Motion in 2008, it's very easy to convince yourself that everything's okay. As the iPhone has launched, the Android operating system's in the market, but they're so small. Uh, your, mar- your share it hasn't been affected. Your market cap hasn't been affected. Yeah, there's a lot of noise there, but actually the data says you're fine. And in 2009, things still look okay. You know, the global financial crisis has worked through the world economy, so we got to deal with that. But we're still the dominant market leader. 2010, you're starting to feel it. 2011, 12, 13, that's when you finally feel it. So the challenge is when you need to take action was really in 2004 and 2005, as Apple is beginning to put its wheels in motion to go into the space. By the time the data tells you it's clear that you need to do something, it's too late to do anything about it. This is why one of the key leadership behaviors that we suggest for leaders facing this kind of challenge is they need the courage to choose because by the time your platform is on fire, it's too late to do anything about it. Yeah, and your mindset is totally different. And what I find so frustrating about the Nokia story and so many people that I know who work in corporate innovation is they often have the solution. The people in the business have solutions, but they're not listened to. And you say, If all you are doing is playing yesterday's game better, your odds of surviving the gale of creative destruction are low. No doubt about it at all. And and again, what you see at Nokia mirrors exactly what we talked about earlier in Kodak. It's not that there's no one who sees it. It's not that there isn't a technological capability to respond. It's not that you don't have smart people who say, hey, this could be the answer. But the institutional forces inside an organization are all geared together to perpetuate the past, to keep doing what you're currently doing better, faster, and cheaper. And this is where it really requires leadership to say, yes, we need to keep running the ship. We got to keep operating and... And we have to think about what are we going to do differently in a world that is changing ever more rapidly. And that is, of course, not an easy thing to do because you have to, as a leader, be able to essentially step out of yourself and say, yesterday and tomorrow are different. Therefore, we need to think different and we need to act different. And it's really easy to say that, but it's just punishingly hard to actually do it. There's a term there I mentioned, creative destruction, and I loved your description of this, Scott, and I'd love if you'd share it with our audience. With creative destruction, we we in the book we we go back to the roots. You know, this comes out of Joseph Schumpeter's work in capitalism, socialism, and democracy, where he talks about this gale of creative destruction that goes and flattens existing companies. And he says this is the the essence of capitalism. It's not how structures administer markets; it's how markets are created and destroyed. And you know, creative destruction is something that we often celebrate, right? This is David taking down Goliath. This is entrepreneurialism in action. The kind of two things that we look at a little bit differently, number one is to recognize that creative destruction is not costless. So when an Eastman Kodak goes down, when you have thousands of people who are good, smart, well-intentioned people who suddenly don't have a job, there's a pretty heavy transaction tax that comes along with it. So that that's something that is one thing that, that we think is important, that creative destruction has problems as well. The other thing is to recognize when that gale blows, when creative destruction is occurring, 
there's a tremendous amount of energy in that gale. Yes, the old can be destroyed, but the new can be created. And one of the just metaphors we think is imagine, imagine you're a large established company and you build a great big wind turbine to capture, harness, and amplify the latent energy in that gale. If you're able to do that, then you can use that to power new waves of growth. In other words, creative destruction need not be a bad thing. Disruption need not be a dirty word. It can be the key to enable the next wave of growth for your organization if you can think different, if you can act different. And this is why I love your work. And I think this work of innovation and transformation is so important because I really don't want to see these behemoth companies acquiring the way to growth and, you know, automating and bringing in AI, because what happens to all the people then? We all need purpose in organizations. And if we use creative destruction properly and we use forces of disruption properly, we can create new markets, we can create new jobs. And we can solve tough problems. You know, one of, of my little things that just gets me just a little crazy is, you know, we hero entrepreneurs so much. And of course, there are some truly great entrepreneurs that are positively impacting the world, et cetera. But, you know, if we're honest about a lot of the hot startups, what do they really do? Uh, they prey into narcissistic tendencies. They make it even easier for people to advertise, uh, to give us things that we don't really want or need and just make us feel worse about ourselves. I, is this really making the world a better place in any material way? Think about the Johnson Disease Interception Program. Johnson & Johnson could, at scale, change the way that global healthcare works. It could make the lives better for hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people. Is it guaranteed to succeed? Of course not. But imagine, imagine if it does. Imagine if we are to, to have one of the big global auto manufacturers really to figure out electrification at scale. You know, what Tesla is doing is really interesting, don't get me wrong, but it's just a drop in the bucket. You need a big OEM to really be able to do this at a repeatable scale. The large organizations, they've got the infrastructure, the assets, the people to really go and have massive positive impact. And in many cases, it's just them getting out of their own way. I'm totally with you. I think the world would be a fundamentally better place if the large organizations could get out of their own way, could realize their full potential, and could drive the changes that this world just so desperately needs. If we bring good knowledge to the world, like your books, we can educate people because they can make better decisions. And it's one of the things that absolutely drives me and it comes through so strongly in your work. I loved one of the things you talked about. You borrow a term from the field of population ecology to describe how leaders can become paralyzed by success. The term is known as fitness landscapes. This is my colleague and co-author, Clark Gilbert, who had this idea, and it's a great one. So a fitness landscape is basically like a topographic map, you know, so you can see heights of things. And the fundamental challenge, if you look at fitness landscapes, is when you're at the top of a hill, while you might see other big hills on the horizon, any move directly from where you are looks like you're moving down. So you have to move down before you move up. And what happens is you're, if you're an established organization and you're crushing it, everything's going well, you start the game at the top of the biggest hill. So every move looks like a stupid move. But then disruption rearranges the topography. Your hill goes down, other hills go up. And you see this great big other hill that's emerging, but still any move from where you are, that first step actually looks worse, not better. So this is something that leaders have to fundamentally understand and think about how they appropriately manage resources and so on so that they can end up on the top of multiple hills and any move looks like a good move, not a bad move. And there's great examples in business that have made the leap, be it Nokia moving from rubber boots to phones, 
but then failing to jump to a new curve. Marriott moving from root beer to hotels or IBM moving from products to services. But one you share as a first-hand case study is by your co-author, Clark Gilbert. And Clark led a dual transformation firsthand in a struggling industry with Deseret News. And let's set some context before we launch into that study. I'd love if we'd go deeper into that. And you say core to the success of Deseret is how Clark didn't focus on one monolithic change effort. He split the effort into two as in a dual transformation. To properly tell the story, you have to do a little bit of the Clark Gilbert origin story. So, you know, I I first met Clark almost 20 years ago. At the time, he was a reasonably newly minted professor at the Harvard Business School. He had done his doctoral research on how incumbents should respond to disruptive change. He focused on Kodak and the U.S. newspaper industry. And if you went back to his doctoral research, you would see a diagram with two bubbles on it that looks a lot like the core dual transformation diagram. So from that, uh, Clark, who has been an advisor to Innosight since its inception, he and I did a bunch of consulting work for the U.S. newspaper industry about 15 years ago. And we said the answer is basically you need to reinvent the core and create tomorrow. We didn't have the dual transformation language yet, but it was basically that. And people kind of fitfully tried, but not really. And you know what happened next. A lot of death and destruction in that industry. So then the story gets interesting. Clark gets a tap on the shoulder and is asked to become the CEO of a media organization. Now, of course, when this happens, everybody laughs. They say, well, the academic will learn what life is like in the real world. He leaves about eight years later and nobody is laughing. Everybody is studying because he took a business that seemed to be in a free fall, in irrevocable decline. And he turned it into a growth business by doing dual transformation. Transformation A was focusing existing publications more narrowly. In the case of Deseret News, it is a religious-affiliated and religious-owned paper. So he said, what we're really going to do is we're going to get out of commodity news. So we're not going to have people who cover sports events or write movie reviews. That's easy to get. We're going to go really deeply on issues of faith and family. And that matters to the Church of Latter-day Saints, which ultimately owns the paper, but it matters to a bunch of other people as well. So there's now a weekly publication that's the fastest growing print publication in North America. So that's the A side. On the B side, they went and created not just online replicas of newspapers, but actual digital communities and digital market spaces. So the the largest socially oriented site targeting mothers in the world is owned by Deseret. So by purposefully doing two distinct different things, refocusing what exists and creating what doesn't, with very careful links in between the two, Clark took a business that seemed dead and revived it and turned it into a growth business. He then went and became the president of BYU-Idaho and did it again. And his reward for doing that is he was asked to be the head of the new B organization, BYU Pathways, which is a way to bring education in a very affordable, accessible way to people all around the world. So he's got great firsthand experience about what works and, of course, what doesn't. This dual transformation is such a battle for leaders trying to convince a board, for example, the new growth will come and ask them to be patient while managing the decline of the legacy business. And Clark went through this. And it's a difficult task, especially because the phases are competing with each other for both resources and for attention. No doubt. You know, one of the things that we try to do, of course, in the book is we try and essentially give you a view to the full movie of dual transformation. And in the movie, there are going to be scenes that you don't like. There are predictable crises along the way. There's a crisis of commitment where people will say, are we really going to do this? Are we really going to put our money where our mouth is? There's a crisis of conflict. At some point, 
A will try to sabotage B. It always happens. Even nice, kind people will try and take down the new organization because they're institutionally jealous of it. Then there's a crisis of identity. When you're becoming something different, there's a sense of loss that often comes along that. So we know these things will happen. So at least if you have understanding about it, it helps you get ready for it. So we hope by sharing what works and what doesn't in the book, more people can be prepared for these crises and do the things that are required to overcome them. But I think it's important to note, what we suggest here is not easy. It is incredibly difficult. And it's not for every organization. You know, If your organization is firing on all cylinders, you've got huge headroom in your existing markets, just go and execute and make it happen, man. Just go and do it because this stuff is really hard. But the reality for many large established organizations is as hard as this is, it's not a nicety. It is a necessity given the pace of change in and around their markets. And you say there that this is a necessity and we see that now. The coronavirus is a black swan that's come out of nowhere. The financial crisis was a black swan for many. And Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you see who is swimming naked. And because of this, we need to be ready. And as you said, Nokia realized in 2008 that they were swimming naked, but they should have been developing new capabilities, transforming in permanence back four years ago or earlier. Absolutely agree. You know, one of the things that we generally tell clients is in almost every case, a client has a good plan for the next year, sometimes for the next two years. But in very few cases, do they actually have a good strategy? That is, if you look, three years, five years, 10 years out, do they have a vision for what the future will look like? Do they have a sense to what the environment will look like? Do they have a viewpoint about what it's going to take to compete? And have they worked backwards from that future to begin planning for it today? And this is the fundamental problem, again, that the data deceives you because the data tells you everything is okay until it's not. And then you can't do anything about it. But if you take what we call a, a future back mindset, which, by the way, my colleagues Mark Johnson and Josh Suskowitz have a great book on this topic, Lead from the Future, that's coming out in April 2020. In our view, it is absolutely critical. Too much of our time is spent in the here and now more of our time needs to be spent in the future because only then can we see that we are on the brink of a crisis that is avoidable if we do the right things today. It's so much more exciting to be defined by a vision of the future rather than a map of the past. And also, you're not learning. If you're not learning, you're not building new habits, you're not building new strategies. All you're doing is managing the business as it is today. And that's just not that exciting. Now, I think one of the more inspirational stories, we don't have it in dual transformation because it, it had not happened as we were writing the book, but I think one of the more inspirational stories in the last couple of years in this area is what's happened with Satya Nadella and Microsoft, where Satya basically came in and said, the fundamental thing that we're going to do is to collectively embrace a growth mindset, where we're going to embrace possibility and positivity and think about how we're going to learn and how we're going to grow and recognize we'll make mistakes along the way, but fundamentally, it's not just about filling in the lines that we've already built a little bit better. It's about reimagining and reconstructing and pushing the business in new directions. And there's a clear dual transformation that's gone on at Microsoft the last few years. The A has been moving to the cloud. The B is all the new things that Microsoft is getting into. And of course, it has been a, a phenomenal success. And I think it's really inspiring to see a company that is a legitimately middle-aged company. It's 45 years old now, same, same age as me. <laughs> it's a legitimate 
legitimately middle-aged company that doesn't have a founder running it. You know, this is a, a professional manager who was not there on day one, who has driven some really bold transformation, which is just, I think, great to see. Yeah, and this might set us up actually for what you talk about, the four key leadership mindsets. And it's just fantastic to see. And it really is a case of hiring somebody who's both right-brained and left-brained as well, because we see this trend in business time and time again, where the CFO becomes the CEO. And of course, they're going to drive everything from the bottom line and trying to get the best possible return and not invest in the future, because that is a total risk to a CFO. It's interesting. There, there's lots of directions we can go in with this one, but let me just take that last point, that the risk. This is, again, one of the lies that we see leaders tell themselves that, that get them in trouble when it comes to disruptive innovation. The, the lie is it's too risky to innovate. And you hear people say this, but let's think about that for a second. L let's think about the biggest innovation flops that we can imagine. And you probably have something coming to your mind. Maybe it's new Coke, or maybe it's Google Glasses, or we mentioned Microsoft. Maybe it's Microsoft Zune. you got examples like that. None of those killed companies. Uh, they're, they're bad, of course. But when you invest to innovate, the worst that can happen is you write off the amount that you invest. Now, let's say you don't innovate. What is the worst that can happen? You can go out of business. Let's say you invest to innovate and you hit it big. Well, there's unlimited upside. So let's think about this again. What is the real risk? The real risk is not investing in innovation. The real risk is not investing in innovation, because that sets your business up for long-term struggles. Now, of course, you have to have the right mindset to understand it, but this is one of the things that you really have to, as a leader, understand, or you will just make the wrong investment decisions. The other thing is when you do have those failures and you've risked it, you can actually create new capabilities and capabilities being so important to the dual transformation framework. And I also think about this, Scott, and I'd love your opinion from a personal perspective. If you don't innovate with yourself, if you don't learn in permanence, you're setting yourself up for a failure, particularly because the creative destruction gale force is coming for the workforces with AI and automation. We need to upskill ourselves in permanence. I think, Aiden, absolutely. You've asked an incredibly important question. So I, I happen to be just coming up on my 10-year anniversary of moving out to Singapore. I moved out here in 2010. And it's really interesting the way that Singapore thinks about this. They recognize that the number one thing they have to do to get their workforce future ready is to train them that learning truly is something that happens over a lifetime. So there's a government program called Skills Future that essentially gives grants to people to go in and pursue further education. And it can be simple stuff like taking a, a course on big data analytics or whatever, but it's a mechanism to begin to condition people that education does not stop when you leave high school, university, whatever. It really is something that has to happen over a lifetime. And in today's changing world, it is critical critical that we continue to learn, that we continue to experiment, that we have the occasional failure, that we do that in an intelligent way so we can learn from it and so on. And just like leaders and those four key mindsets leaders need to have, that involves courage, clarity, curiosity, and conviction. And I'd love if you'd share them through the lens of what leaders need. You hit the four words. So that, that's what we essentially say are the key leadership behaviors to driving a dual transformation. So just a bullet point on each, the, the courage one we mentioned before, the courage to choose before the platform burns. So this is recognizing sometimes weak signals, not being overly data-driven in decisions, and being willing to place things that look like reasonably bold bets. 
the clarity to focus. As you're thinking about creating the next version of your organization, it's not about planting hundreds or thousands of flowers. It's a select few strategic moonshots that you think will go and create the future. The curiosity to explore. A moonshot is never a straight shot. There's always twists and turns and false starts and fumbles and the occasional failure along the way. So you need the curiosity to go and try things and learn by doing and so on. The conviction to persevere, Clark Gilbert, co-author and colleague, says what we are talking about is the hardest problem a leader will ever face. And he is absolutely right. It's not just changing the engine on a plane in mid-flight. It's doing that while you are simultaneously building an army of drones. There will predictably be crises along the way, so you need to have a purpose that's motivating you. You need a vision of where you're going to get to. You need a story that connects that so you've got the conviction to persevere when bad things inevitably happen. That's what we view as the key to leading a dual transformation. One of the stories I loved in the book was the courage to choose before the platform burns. And unbeknownst to many people is that Netflix founder Reed Hastings did this with Netflix mid-flight. When it was going well, he decided to pivot and dual transform. Netflix is such a fascinating example because if anything, the thing that Reed Hastings would say in hindsight is he was too courageous. So let's go back to the origins of Netflix. Of course, those who, who know the company knows that it started not with streaming video, but started by sending people DVDs through the mail, yet very consciously chose the name Netflix, not DVDs by mail, because it knew ultimately it was going to be about internet delivered service. So about now 13 years ago, they began experimenting with providing streaming services. And this is the moment where Reed says they got too bold. They, they actually went and split the company into two. They said one is going to be DVDs by mail, one is going to be streaming services. They raised prices, customers rebelled, the stock price took a huge hit. And Reed recanted, said we did this a little bit too early and was a little bit slower in the change, but went nonetheless from being a DVD by mail company to today, of course, being a streaming company that's allowed it to scale and expand to many more markets and in parallel, change the way that Netflix delivers content. If you go back to the beginning of Netflix, it is essentially serving as a platform where other people create content and it delivers it to consumers. Today, it increasingly is a creator where it goes and creates its own content based on all the data it has about consumers and their preferences. And indeed, they've done that. They've created some very compelling, very addictive series that have driven subscribers up and made Netflix the Netflix that we know and love today. Another great case study you talk about is the study of Xerox as told through the lens of dual transformation. Scott, I'd love if we'd finish on this case study because this is a deep one. And you say here a beautiful line, the disruptive forces that threaten to rip apart today's business create condition to build tomorrow's business. And you start by framing Xerox with the dual transformation equation. Xerox is truly a fascinating case study because it is, on the one hand, a success story, and on the other hand, a cautionary tale. So, And this just shows what life is like in the 21st century. So let's do the success story first. So if you go back about 20 years ago, Xerox was a company where people were questioning its future. You know, As you're going into the digital world, how do you still have a company that has so many things that rely on physical stuff like paper? So a dual transformation effort begins. Ursula Burns is the CEO that ultimately drives a lot of it. Transformation A is a lot of focus in the core portfolio. Uh, getting rid of a lot of product lines, outsourcing a lot of operations, making sure that what exists is done in as efficient way as possible. 
Transformation B is getting into document services. So very similar to what IBM had done a decade before, saying it isn't just the printers that matter. It's the way in which the information that is being printed, people need help in managing things around that. So if you're in the legal world, you might need help managing legal information and so on. So they begin experimenting a little bit in this space and ultimately make a pretty big acquisition to have this be a big part of their business. And everything's working great. The dual transformation is executed. The stock is growing. And then an activist investor comes in, forces them to spin off the document services business, which had grown to be almost 50% of the business. And Xerox is right back at the beginning. And it has to go and do it again. And if you look at at the press today, there's discussions about Xerox potentially merging with Hewlett-Packard which might create a bigger company, but one that still will have the fundamental challenge of how does it change in the face of all the disruption taking place in its industry. This is really hard stuff. This is really hard stuff. The Xerox case is not necessarily a positive one, and you are extremely optimistic. And you mentioned about using the gale of creative destruction, embracing it and using it to take flight. It's very easy to look at the statistics, to listen to the cautionary tales, to hear how every story is going to have crises and have mixed moments, and just say, it's too hard. I'm not going to bother doing it. But recognize again, in that gale of creative destruction is an unbelievable opportunity. Clark calls this the, the hardest problem that a leader will ever face. I completely agree with it. But I also think it is the greatest opportunity a leader will ever encounter. Because when that gale of creative destruction blows, it's the moment. If you lag in an industry, you can go and lead it. It's the moment where you can go and create this great big new opportunity. It's the moment when you can go and create your legacy. And the answers are all out there. This is not mysterious. This is not magic. It's hard work, but we know how to do it. So this ultimately, in my mind, is what leadership is all about. And the opportunities there are so immense. I hope more people rise to the dual transformation challenge. On a personal level, for people who are fearful of the future, so I lecture in university and many of the students are fearful of what to do in the future, etc. But also people in existing roles for fear of automation and AI, like we talked about earlier. What are your advice for those people? Take the red pill. So you know, if you've seen the movie The Matrix, that, that's the big mo- moment in the movie where Morpheus goes up to Neo, who, who is the, the star of the movie, and says, you've got a choice. You, you take the blue pill, you, you remain in this, this fake reality. You take the red pill, I'll show you the truth. I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And it's not easy to take the red pill. Uh, you have to confront reality. There's some loss that comes along the way, but it is the only answer today. You have to recognize that as scary as it can be, the future is going to require innovation, experimentation, forgetting, and relearning. And if you don't start now, you don't have much hope. And Scott, where can people find out more about Inside, about your books, etc.? Yeah, pretty easy, www.innocite.com. So if you go there or you looked at our LinkedIn page, either for Innocite or for me personally, you will find probably more than you ever want to know about some of these topics. Author of Dual Transformation, How to Reposition Today's Business While Creating the Future, Scott D. Anthony, as always, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me.